pronouncing name for me? Paris Laguerre. Laguerre? Laguerre, perfect. It it sounds French. It is, my husband's Haitian, so I inherited a French last name. It's beautiful, I like it. I said it right. Yes, you did. So guys, I'm here with Carice, and you are a dental hygienist, right? Yes. And you, can you, can you tell me what myofunctional therapy is? What is myofunctional therapy? <laughs> so yes, I am a dental hygienist and a myofunctional therapist. Myofunctional therapy, in the simplest terms, it's kind of like personal training, but for all the muscles below the eyes, but above the shoulders. So we work with all the muscles in this group to facilitate proper function. That way you can breathe better, chew better, swallow better, and sleep better, breathe better. Wow. So so you can um, do myofunctional therapy even if you don't have any of those issues. I do need to sleep, though. epidemic it's really and it actually was labeled by the cdc as an epidemic like there are too many people suffering from sleep deprivation it's looking like one in three which is 30 percent of the population should not be struggling with sleep (laughs) i bet you you sleep good don't you i do i know because you mastered that so it it also helps with did you did did it say tongue tie? Yes. Yes. Ah, so okay, if a person is tongue tied, what yes. kind of um health symptoms do they have? Other okay. than speech, because I know someone that's tongue tied. Other than speech, because when they when they go on, they tongue can only go, if you're not familiar with, with tongue tie guys, is that's when the the lingual frenulum, so the connective soft tissue underneath the tongue. So everybody has that soft tissue present underneath the tongue. The tongue is connected from the base of the tongue to the floor of the mouth through a a small string of tissue. So that's a little connective tissue. Some people have it where it is just too short or it's too tight. So it's restricting the movement of the tongue. And so what happens is with a tongue tie, it can impact a number of things because the tongue, I like to think of it as a respiratory organ because it's essential for breathing and respiration. Our tongue is gonna stimulate the palate when it's able to. So sometimes that's the problem with a tongue tie is that it will not be able to get up to connect with the palate. And it stimulates that palate to help facilitate, one, it turns on that vagus nerve, which is gonna help us for numerous things because the vagus nerve is all about our autonomic system and we're gonna be able to rest, digest and that type of stuff. But it also stimulates breathing because the floor of the mouth, I'm sorry, the roof of the mouth is the floor of the nose. So when you're stimulating that, you're able to facilitate and better intake that oxygen through the nose. And so the tongue tie can be detrimental for numerous reasons. One, you won't get that stimulation if you're not able to get that tongue to palate contact constantly. But two, it's also going to affect numerous things like digestion, how you are able to swallow and intake food. You might be doing undue damage to your own system. We find a lot of these people with tongue ties do also have associated symptoms such as swallowing too much air, that's aerophasia, or 
acid reflux. Acid reflux is a very common thing with a tongue tie as well. So I would say that speech is literally like at the back end of things because growth, development, breathing, being able to eat and digest properly all take precedence over that. Um, so if your baby is born with a tongue tie, should you get it cut or can you get it cut? Is there a surgery for it to reverse it or do you leave it? There is a surgery and what the surgery does is it kind of removes a piece of that tissue. So it just, when it remodels, it's going to remodel a little bit further back, a little bit more posterior so that you have more use of the middle and the front of the tongue. Now, sometimes with babies where the effects and impacts is really their breastfeeding ability. They're not able to latch. They're not able to adequately pull the milk or sometimes they do latch, but they latch inappropriately and it causes the mother's pain, bleeding nipples, all sorts of undue stress that we don't need with a brand new mother and a baby just trying to you know get through nutrition and so yes it can be released in a very simple procedure it's called a phrenectomy and that phrenectomy can be done in some dental offices not all but some dental offices they have a laser and they are able to surgically remove the piece of tissue in a matter of minutes or an ENT might be another option who in many instances they may snip or clip it which it depends on the skill of the surgeon but sometimes it's a complete release when they snip and clip many times it's not so it's best to have that kind of surgery if you're a little older I would say it's easier when you're a baby because we all feel so much better as a baby. Think about that newborn baby skin. and <laughs> We don't have that now. Right. So it's so much easier to heal when you're younger, but you can get it done at any point in time during your life. And it is comparatively to other surgeries, it is a lot easier to manage. Wow. Sleep apnea. Mm -hmm. That's interesting to me um why does the surgery for sleep apnea cause people to pass away i know a couple of people who had a surgery and it caused, it caused them to bleed now i don't know what that's about mm -hmm. but sleep apnea let's talk about it yeah let's talk about it the surgery that you're referencing is it a surgery specifically within the throat where where was the surgery i'm not sure that part of it but i know they did suffer from sleep apnea like really bad the problem with sleep apnea is that a lot of people who suffer from it, obstructive sleep apnea, it's because of the soft tissues collapsing within the airway, the upper respiratory tract, right? So you're talking about really because all of it's connected from our ears to our nose down to our throat. We're talking about this area here where I specifically work from the nose down to the throat. And when that is not developed adequately, and it's very narrow, it makes surgery more difficult as a whole because all of those tissues didn't allow enough space. So it doesn't matter any type of surgery that's happening above the shoulders is going to be more difficult, especially if you have to intubate somebody or you don't know if you need to intubate them. Oftentimes you might be, you know, just putting them under without actually putting a tube in or doing anything to keep that airway forcibly open. So the treatment, common treatment for obstructive sleep apnea is a CPAP, 
and that's continuous positive airway pressure machine. Oh. Essentially what that means is that air forcibly keeping that um, upper respiratory tract open. So it's air pushing and forcing it. When there's surgery and we don't intubate because that tube would be holding it open, we're at a risk of getting that tissue to collapse. And so that's what makes it just a little bit more risky because those apneas are from that airway collapsing and we don't want that because we need to breathe over anything else we need to breathe we can go for a while without food we can go a couple of days without water but not many of us would last more than a few minutes without being able to breathe and what i should have asked you in the beginning for the audience is exactly what is sleep apnea and what are the symptoms someone that you know say i think i have that and maybe watching you <laughs> they can get information Obstructive sleep apnea is something that you might you might hear or you might see or experience once you're sleeping, okay? So you might hear it in the form of snoring or gasping, or sometimes you might be choking or feeling like you can't get enough air, or you might witness that in a partner, in a bed partner who you might be, you know, experiencing all these things with. You might also hear it in the form of just silence because you won't hear them breathing anymore and it stops and it's a hold for 10 seconds and it's the longest 10 seconds of your life where you don't hear your partner your bed partner breathing that apnea becomes um, very frequent and that's when it's diagnosed as obstructive sleep apnea now it, if it happens occasionally or once or twice a night or something like that then you wouldn't get a diagnosis per se right because they consider that in normal limits however it is something that is a concern because when the body is not able to intake that oxygen it's going to have uh, neurological and cognitive effects that are going to be hard to make up for. So when you wake up in the morning, typically you feel like you weren't sleeping for however many hours you were in bed. You feel still tired. You feel lethargic. You're having a little bit of difficulty getting out of the bed in the morning. You might feel like you can't really process what's going on. Sometimes people are unable to really wake up and really feel like their body is is up. Wow. Numerous things that would classify, quantify. And what they do is, it's something like a sleep study. I don't know, is it a sleep study? A sleep study, yeah, sleep studies. And we've come such a long way with technology that there have been some really reliable ways to do the sleep study at home, in your own bed, under the typical conditions on which you would sleep. But the standard of care is going to be to be inside of a facility and you would be monitored. They have monitors everywhere. They're watching your neurological symptoms. They're tracking your brain waves. They're tracking your respiration. They're tracking your movements. They're listening for the snoring or the gasping. And so there's monitors and wires everywhere. If you've ever seen somebody wow. take a sleep, a sleep test, Probably it's not the most like, fun thing to do, but it gives you a lot of great data. Does the person fall asleep with a sleep study on their own or do they induce sleep? Not induce sleep, but you know what I mean? like. Because I couldn't fall asleep, I think. I know. You fall asleep on, you're supposed to fall asleep on your own. We don't. Right. You know, so we that, don't put you down to sleep. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Wow. I, I was always curious about that. Anxiety. Anxiety. <laughs> I can do it. Anxiety. <laughs> okay. 
Anxiety, that's a big one. And you know, there's always been a link between poor breathing and anxiety because one of the first things that many therapists will tell you is to watch your breathing, count your breaths, do certain breathing exercises. So breathing can be a really great way to regulate our autonomic nervous system. And if we're not regulating it properly, it puts us into that fright or flight and it activates that system. And so we're not able to really calm our senses. And so with myofunctional therapy, a lot of what we do is breathing retraining and it's trying to establish really good patent nostrils that we were able to predominantly breathe from the nose because the nose is where we need to respirate. So that's how you're going to get a lot of great good quality oxygen and with that tongue stimulating that palate, that vagus nerve that's regulating all of that autonomic nervous system, we typically see really great results in people with anxiety because they are able to self-regulate a little bit better. Once you get a better hold and grip on how you are breathing, it does help neurologically. And anxiety attacks the onset for many people. Well, I've known women who have had them, stress. Is that part of the anxiety attack? Like what are part of the triggers for it? Stress, yes, can definitely be a big factor for it, especially if you're put in a specific situation that you were not anticipating. So undue, unexpected stress are going to be a really big trigger for it. But it can really happen at any point in time. And many times it's really just a lack of the body being able to self-regulate. And so you're not really aware of, you're not really too able to recapture what you are experiencing because you're out kind of in an out-of-body experience almost is what it seems like wow yeah wow that's interesting because anxiety now that's a big one because i've heard you know a lot of people have them and no everybody's like, i don't know where it's from and the funny thing is why do you feel like you have to get an asthma machine or you feel like you have I, i'm just saying that because i mean i had an anxiety attack before the first thing i did was the kids i, I need to nebulize it's like you think you need something to help you breathe and you try not to panic. So for the onset, like when a person has the onset, what would be their first go-to thing to do for themselves? Find a focal area, something that they can focus on, even if it's something small, like you see, a, a, I don't know, like a fly on the wall. You focus on the fly and you try to recapture that breathing, that desire to breathe that desire to be like, oh my gosh, I need my nebulizer. I need my inhale. I need something. I, I can't breathe. That desire needs to be met. So you're going to recapture your breathing. You're going to try to do a breathing exercise. A lot of um, psychologists typically recommend something where it is a count of four or six of an inhale, and then it's going to be a longer exhale. So you would count one, two, three, four, inhale, and then exhale a six count or count to six and exhale a eight count. Wow. Because when that happens, you be so busy focused on not being able to breathe that you go, your brain just go away from you. So audience, if you have anxiety, um, Therese, she's giving us some really important information. I thank you so much. It's so interesting too. Um, oral facial dysfunction. Yes. 
So it can be any number of things an improper swallow. It could be a tongue thrust that's visible during speech. So people who are speaking, like I think you referenced earlier, and then their tongue is visible during the speech. It's an inability to um, use the muscles of the face appropriately. So sometimes they may be clenchers or grinders and overdeveloped muscles here. And then they're unable, they're unable, I'm sorry, they're unable to really regulate those muscles for what they should be used for. So when it's time, a different muscle group tends to recruit to kind of help the body do different functions like swallow, like being able to chew and so forth. And so it really throws off one, facial development, but two, you have a lot of people who have had braces and then they find that their teeth are shifting even if they're wearing retainers. Um, that's a lot of the soft tissue pressures. So we have a constant soft tissue pressure from the cheeks, the tongue, the lips, that it's always applying a pressure and kind of keeping relatively stable our teeth. But when there is dysfunction, there's sort of a disharmony where there is an undue force of the soft tissues on some level or area where it's going to impact how the teeth are moving or how they rest within the oral cavity. So even with wearing their retainer, they're finding these shifts happening because you can't really counteract these poor tissue pressures that are occurring. So what we want to do is we want to make sure that we don't have oral facial dysfunction and that we're able to really use all of those muscles properly because when we can't, it's going to impact, you know, our teeth being able to stay still, our jaw stability. A lot of people experience a lot of temporal mandibular jaw pain and or clicking, popping, or they might even experience just pain in the facial area. A lot of temporal headaches that do occur are sometimes from oral facial pain. And so that dysfunction needs to be addressed. That way we can stop compounding it because over time it just tends to compound. It doesn't get better on its own. And so that's where myofunctional therapy comes in to help and to balance, rebalance all of those pressures. You know what you mentioned I missed? Grinding. Uh, people who grind their teeth in yeah. sleep. What is that? I mean, I know what it is, but does it affect your teeth? Of course it affects your teeth because there's such pressure there, right? So those teeth grinding against each other, it's going to wear down on the teeth and the biting surfaces, which is going to impact your overall bite, right? Some people grind them down to almost little nubs. So it's going to impact your bite, but it also impacts any restorative work you may have had done. So let's say you've had crowns or bridges or implants or something placed in your mouth. It might be, you know, compromised by that grinding. So often what we think, there are many different theories as to why grinding occurs. But from my perspective and in the airway field, what we believe is that when you are grinding, you're essentially moving your mandible forward. So even if you were to just take a second and just be aware of your breath as your lips are closed and you're just in your normal stance and then shift your jaw forward and take a deep breath in, you'll feel that you get more air in. So essentially, it is just the body helping to grab more air and open up that airway. It's like a protective mechanism of sorts. So you say you self-help, that's who you are. I can see that, this passion, and I can see it from your heart. I would like to talk about your book. You published a book. 
Yes, accomplish. <laughs> accomplish how to sleep better, eliminate burnout, execute goals is uh, just a labor of love because essentially what I do is I break down why traditional sleeping, you know, mechanisms or habits or things that are out there, common tips that are out there to help improve sleep, why those might not be working for you. If you already have certain problems like oral facial dysfunction, or if you're already experiencing sleep apnea, like it doesn't matter how many hours before bed you wait to eat. It doesn't matter how much blue light you let into your life. I mean, you're still gonna have poor sleep if you don't address what's going on in this area I work with. So below the eyes and above the shoulders, you gotta address any sort of dysfunction there. So I talk in the book about how you can do that. I go through a nice little plan. I call it the CARE plan, C-A-R-E. It's gonna consist of four different steps. So C is going to be consistency. We need a good, solid, consistent routine for bed. We are creatures of habit. Our circadian rhythm is literally based all on habit and nothing else. What we need to do is make sure that we are able to get ourselves into a wind down routine, sort of at a consistent time as much as possible. So everybody has busy lives. We are in such a busy rush, rush, hurry, hurry type of world where people have access to us all the time because we have cell phones and email and you could be answering work emails in the middle of the night, right? But what we need to do is at some point, turn it off, be consistent about when your bedtime routine is going to start. Then A is airway management. The number one thing that anyone can do, and this is like a really great self-help tip, the number one thing that anyone can do to help themselves for bed and preparing themselves for bed to get optimal sleep is have a nasal hygiene routine. You need to clean out the nasal passages. We need oxygen in order to power a lot of our sleep. And I talk about it in depth in the book. And so if you're able to cleanse your nose and you have a saline rinse or a saline wash, or you use a net pot or something to cleanse out the nose, it is ideal. You need to clean your nose. That way you can adequately keep and maintain a nice patency or openness in the nostrils. So airway management is A. Then we go to R. R is relax. The very first stages of sleep or the body just in a very light, relaxed state. You have to prep yourself for that. So be able to wind down appropriately. So consistently make sure you're in bed at an appropriate time, manage your airway prior to bed and relax your way down, okay? And then E is the morning after, you're going to be efficient. After you've gotten a good night's rest, get up out of bed. Don't like hang out there and like lazily just relax and no, no. Get up, get out of bed, hop in the shower, open a window, get some sunlight, be able to actually power and self-charge for the day ahead. So you have to be as efficient as possible. So my care routine, I outline in detail in the book. It is a phenomenal book and it's such a labor of love. And so, yeah. So I, I mean, I use saline and I use it for my kids too, you know, when they come in, clean the passes. So that was, I'm very familiar with that. Um, I, have, uh-huh. I have this question. So what about people who can sleep? I have you ever seen a person who could you could wake them up and they're like, oh, I'm up now for the rest of the 
a couple of hours, but then you meet a person who every time they lay down, they just fall asleep. Like they, is that good? Like they can fall asleep at any time. They don't have a problem with not sleeping. Some parts of that might be some narcolepsy or some other sleep disorders, or they might be overtired. And so now their body's compensating to the point where they've just become so lethargic, they have to get to a point of rest. But I I don't think that it's 100% you know, I, you know what? I don't believe anything is 100% normal. We're all on some sort of spectrum or scale somewhere, right? We fall somewhere on a scale. Nobody's in like this nice little grouping, but we want to be more in the middle of the scale. So we don't want to be one of those people who are overtired. And we also don't want to be one of those people suffering from insomnia where we can't sleep. So it's going to be something where we want to meet in the middle, where we don't want to be overtired. And we also want to be able to well rest. Right. And when you when you when you have babies, do you believe that if you keep them on a nice sleep schedule, and that's so hard to do, but to keep them on a sleep schedule, that you can possibly raise sleepers, healthy sleepers? I would like to call it that. I don't know if it's a such thing. Yes and no. It depends whose schedule it's falling on. If you're setting the schedule and it's not the schedule, if you have to like forcibly make this schedule happen, then it might not raise a healthy sleeper. But like I said, we are creatures of habit. It is incredibly important that we regulate our circadian rhythm and you have to do that by having consistent routines. So you need to start that from early on. If you start that from very early on and you're listening to those cues from the, the child, the infant, the baby, you, you'll be able able to establish something solid not not all babies are going to go down at 7 p.m and then wake up blissfully at 6 a.m like that's not the way it works some want to be in bed very early and wake up early some want to be in bed late and then wake up late and then there's all sorts of spectrums we want to land somewhere in the middle where we're respecting the timeline of that individual child nice share your website and how we can get your book So you can find me or more information about myofunctional therapy on my website. It is themyospot.com, T-H-E-M-Y-O-S-P-O-T.com. I also write a blog with a lot of informative information. You can learn more about tongue ties there. That is airwaymatters.com. Um, airway matters with an s.com and uh, the book is available on amazon it is accomplished how to sleep better eliminate burnout and execute goals and you can also um, get her information from mohanilove.com thank you so much for um interviewing with me this morning the information was so much information that i'm sure it helped the audience along with myself. Thank you. Is there anything you would like to say to the audience before we finish? I think the number one thing is always to advocate for yourself. If you feel like something's wrong, don't let it be ignored. I know traditional medicine sometimes will kind of bypass things or medicate them and kind of feel like that's okay. But always advocate for yourself be that person who's going to say you know something's not right and i hope that there's another way that i can go about getting help and so self-advocacy is incredibly important but thank you so much for having me i am so happy to have been here and shared all this information thank you bye enjoy your day bye
pronouncing name for me. Paris Laguerre. Laguerre? Laguerre, perfect. It sounds French. It is, my husband's Haitian, so I inherited a French last name. It's beautiful, I like it. I said it right. Yes, you did. So guys, I'm here with Carice, and you are a dental hygienist, right? Yes. And you, can you can you tell me what myofunctional therapy is? What is myofunctional therapy? <laughs> so yes, I am a dental hygienist and a myofunctional therapist. Myofunctional therapy, in the simplest terms, it's kind of like personal training, but for all the muscles below the eyes, but above the shoulders. So we work with all the muscles in this group to facilitate proper function. That way you can breathe better, chew better, swallow better, and sleep better, breathe better. Wow. So so you can um, do myofunctional therapy even if you don't have any of those issues. I do need to sleep, though. Everybody needs to sleep. I know. It's epidemic. It's really, and it actually was labeled by the CDC as an epidemic. Like there are too many people suffering from sleep deprivation. It's looking like one in three, which is 30% of the population should not be struggling with sleep. <laughs> I bet you, you sleep good, don't you? I do. I know. Because you've mastered that. So it, it also helps with. Did you, did, did it say tongue tie? Yes. Yes. Ah, so, okay. If a person is tongue tied, what yes. kind of um, health symptoms do they have? Other okay. than speech, because I know someone that's tongue tied. Other than speech, because when they, when they go, uh, they tongue can only go, if you're not familiar with, with tongue tie, guys, is that's when the, the lingual frenulum, so the connective soft tissue underneath the tongue. So everybody has that soft tissue present underneath the tongue. The tongue is connected from the base of the tongue to the floor of the mouth through a small, a small string of tissue. So that's a little connective tissue. Some people have it where it is just too short or it's too tight. So it's restricting the movement of the tongue. And so what happens is with a tongue tie, it can impact a number of things because the tongue, I like to think of it as a respiratory organ because it's essential for breathing and respiration. Our tongue is gonna to stimulate the palate when it's able to. So sometimes that's the problem with a tongue tie is that it will not be able to get up to connect with the palate. And it stimulates that palate to help facilitate, one, it turns on that vagus nerve, which is gonna help us for numerous things because the vagus nerve is all about our autonomic system and we're gonna be able to rest, digest, and that type of stuff. But it also stimulates breathing because the floor of the mouth, the, I'm sorry, the roof of the mouth is the floor of the nose. So when you're stimulating that, you're able to facilitate and better intake that oxygen through the nose. And so the tongue tie can be detrimental for numerous reasons. One, you won't get that stimulation if you're not able to get that tongue to palate contact constantly. But two, it's also going to affect numerous things like digestion, how you are able to swallow and intake food. You might be doing undue damage to your own system. We find a lot of these people with tongue ties do also have associated symptoms such as swallowing too much air, that's aerophasia, or 
uh, acid reflux. Acid reflux is a very common thing with a tongue tie as well. So I would say that speech is literally like at the back end of things because growth, development, breathing, being able to eat and digest properly all take precedence over that. Um, so if your baby is born with a tongue tie, should you get it cut or can you get it cut? Is there a surgery for it to reverse it or do you need it? There is a surgery and what the surgery does is it kind of removes a piece of that tissue. So it just when it remodels it's going to remodel a little bit further back a little bit more posterior so that you have more use of the middle and the front of the tongue now sometimes with babies where the effects and impacts is really their breastfeeding ability they're not able to latch they're not able to adequately pull the milk or sometimes they do latch but they latch inappropriately and it causes the mother's pain bleeding nipples all sorts of undue stress that we don't need with a brand new mother and a baby just trying to you know get through nutrition and so yes it can be released in a very simple procedure it's called a phrenectomy and that phrenectomy can be done in some dental offices not all but some dental offices they have a laser and they are able to surgically remove the piece of tissue in a matter of minutes or an ENT might be another option who in many instances they may snip or clip it which it depends on the skill of the surgeon but sometimes it's a complete release when they snip and clip many times it's not so it's best to have that kind of surgery I would say it's easier when you're a baby because okay. We all feel so much better as a baby. Think about that newborn baby skin. And <laughs> we don't have that now. Right. So it's so much easier to heal when you're younger, but you can get it done at any point in time during your life. And it is comparatively to other surgeries, it is a lot easier to manage. Wow. Sleep apnea. Mm -hmm. That's interesting to me. Um, why does the surgery for sleep apnea cause people to pass away? I know a couple of people who had a surgery and it caused, it caused them to bleed. Now, I don't know what that's about, but sleep apnea, let's talk about it. Yeah, let's talk about it. The surgery that you're referencing, is it a surgery specifically within the throat? Where, where was the surgery? I'm not sure that part of it, but I know they did suffer from sleep apnea like really bad. The problem with sleep apnea is that a lot of people who suffer from it, obstructive sleep apnea, it's because of the soft tissues collapsing within the airway, the upper respiratory tract, right? So you're talking about really, because all of it's connected from our ears to our nose, down to our throat, we're talking about this area here where I specifically work from the nose down to the throat. And when that is not developed adequately, and it's very narrow, it makes surgery more difficult as a whole because all of those tissues didn't allow enough space. So it doesn't matter any type of surgery that's happening above the shoulders is going to be more difficult, especially if you have to intubate somebody or you don't know if you need to intubate them. Oftentimes you might be you know, just putting them under without actually putting a tube in or doing anything to keep that airway forcibly open. 
So the treatment, common treatment for obstructive sleep apnea is a CPAP, and that's a continuous positive airway pressure machine. Oh, Essentially what that means is that air forcibly keeping that um, upper respiratory tract open. So it's air pushing and forcing it. When there's surgery and we don't intubate because that tube would be holding it open, we're at a risk of getting that tissue to collapse. And so that's what makes it just a little bit more risky because those apneas are from that airway collapsing and we don't want that because we need to breathe over anything else, we need to breathe. We can go for a while without food, we can go a couple of days without water, but not many of us would last more than a few minutes without being able to breathe. And what I should have asked you in the beginning for the audience is exactly what is sleep apnea and what are the symptoms? Someone that, you know, say, I think I have that, and maybe watching you, <laughs> they can get information. Obstructive sleep apnea is something that you might you might hear or you might see or experience once you're sleeping, okay? So you might hear it in the form of snoring or gasping, or sometimes you might be choking or feeling like you can't get enough air, or you might witness that in a partner, in a bed partner who you might be, you know, experiencing all these things with. You might also hear it in the form of just silence because you won't hear them breathing anymore and it stops and it's a hold for 10 seconds and it's the longest 10 seconds of your life where you don't hear your partner or your bed partner breathing that apnea becomes um, very frequent and that's when it's diagnosed as obstructive sleep apnea now if it happens occasionally or once or twice a night or something like that then you wouldn't get a diagnosis per se right because they consider that in normal limits however it is something that is a concern because when the body is not able to intake that oxygen, it's going to have uh, neurological and cognitive effects that are going to be hard to make up for. So when you wake up in the morning, typically you feel like you weren't sleeping for however many hours you were in bed. You feel still tired. You feel lethargic. You're having a little bit of difficulty getting out of the bed in the morning. You might feel like you can't really process what's going on. Sometimes people are unable to really wake up and really feel like their body is is up. Wow. Numerous things that would classify, quantify. And what they do is, it's something like a sleep, I don't know, is it a sleep study? A sleep study, yeah, sleep studies. And we've come such a long way with technology that there have been some really reliable ways to do the sleep study at home in your own bed under the typical conditions on which you would sleep. But the standard of care is going to be to be inside of a facility and you would be monitored. They have monitors everywhere. They're watching your neurological symptoms. They're tracking your brain waves. They're tracking your respiration. They're tracking your movements. They're listening for the snoring or the gasping. And so there's monitors and wires everywhere. If you've ever seen somebody wow. take a sleep, sleep test, Probably it's not the most like, fun thing to do, but it gives you a lot of great data. Does the person fall asleep with a sleep study on their own or do they induce sleep? Not induce sleep, but you know what I mean? Like, because I couldn't fall asleep, I think. I know. You fall asleep on, you're supposed to fall asleep on your own. We don't. Right. No, so that, we don't you down to sleep. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Wow. I, I was always curious about that. 
Anxiety. Anxiety. That's a big one. And you know, there's always been a link between poor breathing and anxiety because one of the first things that many therapists will tell you is to watch your breathing count your breaths, do certain breathing exercises. So breathing can be a really great way to regulate our autonomic nervous system. And if we're not regulating it properly, it puts us into that fright or flight and it activates that system. And so we're not able to really calm our senses. And so with myofunctional therapy, a lot of what we do is breathing retraining and it's trying to establish really good patent nostrils that we were able to predominantly breathe from the nose because the nose is where we need to respirate so that's how you're going to get a lot of great good quality oxygen and with that tongue stimulating that palate that vagus nerve that's regulating all of that autonomic nervous system we typically see really great results in people with anxiety because they are able to self-regulate a little bit better once you get a better hold and grip on how you are breathing it does help neurologically and anxiety attacks onset for many people well i've known women who have had them stress is that part of the anxiety attack like what are part of the triggers for it stress yes can definitely be a big factor for it especially if you're put in a specific situation that you were not anticipating so undo unexpected stress that are going to be a really big trigger for it but it can really happen at any point in time and many times it's really just a lack of the body being able to self-regulate and so you're not really aware of you're not really too able to recapture what you are experiencing because you're out kind of in an out-of-body experience almost it's what it seems like wow yeah Wow, that's interesting because anxiety, now that's a big one because I've heard, you know, a lot of people have them and not everybody's like, I don't know where it's from. And the funny thing is, why do you feel like you have to get an asthma machine or you feel like you have, I'm just saying that because, I mean, I had an anxiety attack before. The first thing I did was, the kids, I need to nebulize. It's like you think you need something to help you breathe and you try not to panic. So. For the onset, like when a person has the onset, what would be their first go-to thing to do for themselves? find a focal area, something that they can focus on, even if it's something small, like you see, a, a, I don't know, like a fly on the wall. You focus on the fly and you try to recapture that breathing, that desire to breathe, that desire to be like, oh my gosh, I need my nebulizer, I need my inhale, I need something, I, I can't breathe. That desire needs to be met. So you're gonna recapture your breathing. You're going to try to do a breathing exercise. A lot of um, psychologists typically recommend something where it is a count of four or six of an inhale, and then it's gonna be a longer exhale. So you would count one, two, three, four, inhale, and then exhale a six count, or count to six and exhale a eight count. Wow, because when that happens, you be so busy focused on not being able to breathe that you go, your brain just go away from you. So audience, if you have anxiety, Therese, she's giving us some really important information. I thank you so much. It's so interesting too. Um, oral facial dysfunction. 
So it can be any number of things, an improper swallow. It could be a tongue thrust that's visible during speech. So people who are speaking, like I think you referenced earlier, and then their tongue is visible during the speech. It's an inability to um, use the muscles of the face appropriately. So sometimes they may be clenchers or grinders and overdeveloped muscles here. And then they're unable, they're unable, I'm sorry, they're unable to really regulate those muscles for what they should be used for. So when it's time, a different muscle group tends to recruit to kind of help the body do different functions like swallow, like be able to chew and so forth. And so it really throws off one, facial development, but two, you have a lot of people who have had braces and then they find that their teeth are shifting, even if they're wearing retainers, um, that's a lot of the soft tissue pressures. So we have a constant soft tissue pressure from the cheeks, the tongue, the lips, that it's always applying a pressure and kind of keeping relatively stable our teeth. But when there is dysfunction, there's sort of a disharmony where there is an undue force of the soft tissues on some level or area where it's going to impact how the teeth are moving or how they rest within the oral cavity. So even with wearing their retainer, they're finding these shifts happening because you can't really counteract these poor tissue pressures that are occurring. So what we want to do is we want to make sure that we don't have oral facial dysfunction and that we're able to really use all of those muscles properly because when we can't, it's going to impact, you know, our teeth being able to stay still, our jaw stability. A lot of people experience a lot of temporal mandibular jaw pain and or clicking, popping, or they might even experience just pain in the facial area. A lot of temporal headaches that do occur are sometimes from oral facial pain. And so that dysfunction needs to be addressed. That way we can stop compounding it because over time it just tends to compound. It doesn't get better on its own. And so that's where myofunctional therapy comes in to help and to balance, rebalance all of those pressures. You know what you mentioned I missed? Grinding. Uh, people who grind their teeth yeah. in what is that? I mean, I know what it is, but does it affect your teeth? Of course it affects your teeth because there's such pressure there, right? So those teeth grinding against each other, it's going to wear down on the teeth and the biting surfaces, which is going to impact your overall bite, right? Some people grind them down to almost little nubs. So it's going to impact your bite, but it also impacts any restorative work you may have had done. So let's say you've had crowns or bridges or implants or something placed in your mouth. It might be, you know, compromised by that grinding. So often what we think, there are many different theories as to why grinding occurs. But from my perspective and in the airway field, what we believe is that when you are grinding, you're essentially moving your mandible forward. So even if you were to just take a second and just be aware of your breath as your lips are closed and you're just in your normal stance and then shift your jaw forward and take a deep breath in, you'll feel that you get more air in. So essentially, it is just the body helping to grab more air and open up that airway. It's like a protective mechanism of sorts. So you say you self-help, that's who you are. I can see that, this passion, and I can see it from your heart. I would like to talk about your book. You published a book. 
Yes, accomplished. <laughs> accomplished. How to sleep better, eliminate burnout, execute goals is a. Uh, just a labor of love because essentially what I do is I break down why traditional sleeping, you know, mechanisms or habits or things that are out there, common tips that are out there to help improve sleep, why those might not be working for you. If you already have certain problems like oral facial dysfunction, or if you're already experiencing sleep apnea, like it doesn't matter how many hours before bed you wait to eat, it doesn't matter how much blue light you let into your life, I mean, you're still gonna have poor sleep if you don't address what's going on in this area I work with. So below the eyes and above the shoulders, you gotta address any sort of dysfunction there. So I talk in the book about how you can do that. I go through a nice little plan. I call it the CARE plan, C-A-R-E. It's gonna consist of four different steps. So C is going to be consistency. We need a good, solid, consistent routine for bed. We are creatures of habit. Our circadian rhythm is literally based all on habit and nothing else. What we need to do is make sure that we are able to get ourselves into a wind down routine, sort of at a consistent time as much as possible. So everybody has busy lives. We are in such a busy rush, rush, hurry, hurry type of world where people have access to us all the time because we have cell phones and email and you could be answering work emails in the middle of the night, right? But what we need to do is at some point, turn it off, be consistent about when your bedtime routine is going to start. Then A is airway management. The number one thing that anyone can do, and this is like a really great self-help tip, the number one thing that anyone can do to help themselves for bed and preparing themselves for bed to get optimal sleep is have a nasal hygiene routine. You need to clean out the nasal passages. We need oxygen in order to power a lot of our sleep. And I talk about it in depth in the book. And so if you're able to cleanse your nose and you have a saline rinse or a saline wash, or you use a net pot or something to cleanse out the nose, it is ideal. You need to clean your nose. That way you can adequately keep and maintain a nice patency or openness in the nostrils. So airway management is A. Then we go to R. R is relax. The very first stages of sleep or the body just in a very light, relaxed state. You have to prep yourself for that. So be able to wind down appropriately. So consistently make sure you're in bed at an appropriate time, manage your airway prior to bed and relax your way down, okay? And then E is the morning after, you're going to be efficient. After you've gotten a good night's rest, get up out of bed. Don't like to hang out there and like lazily just relax and no, no. Get up, get out of bed, hop in the shower, open a window, get some sunlight, be able to actually power and self-charge for the day ahead. So you have to be as efficient as possible. So my care routine, I outline in detail in the book. It is a phenomenal book and a, such a labor of love. And so, yeah. So I, I mean, I use saline and I use it for my kids too, you know, when they come in, clean the passes. So that was, I'm very familiar with that. Um, I, awesome. have, I have this question. So what about people who can sleep? 
I have you ever seen a person who could you could wake them up and they're like, oh, I'm up now for the rest of the couple of hours. But then you meet a person who every time they lay down, they just fall asleep. Like they, is that good? Like they can fall asleep at any time. They don't have a problem with not sleeping. Some parts of that might be some narcolepsy or some other sleep disorders, or they might be overtired. And so now their body's compensating to the point where they've just become so lethargic, they have to get to a point of rest. But I, I don't think that it's 100% you know, I, you know what? I don't believe anything is 100% normal. We're all on some sort of spectrum or scale somewhere, right? We fall somewhere on a scale. Nobody's in like this nice little grouping, but we want to be more in the middle of the scale. So we don't want to be one of those people who are overtired. And we also don't want to be one of those people suffering from insomnia where we can't sleep. So it's going to be something where we want to meet in the middle, where we don't want to be overtired. And we also want to be able to well rest. Right, and when you when you when you have babies, do you believe that if you keep them on a nice sleep schedule, and that's so hard to do, but to keep them on a sleep schedule, that you can possibly raise sleepers, healthy sleepers? I would like to call it that. I don't know if it's a such thing. Yes and no. It depends whose schedule it's falling on. If you're setting the schedule and it's not the schedule, if you have to like forcibly make this schedule happen, then it might not raise a healthy sleeper. But like I said, we are creatures of habit. It is incredibly important that we regulate our circadian rhythm and you have to do that by having a consistent routine. So you need to start that from early on. If you start that from very early on and you're listening to those cues from the, the child, the infant, the baby, you, you'll be able to establish something solid. Not, not all babies are gonna go down at 7 p.m. and then wake up blissfully at 6 a.m. Like that's not the way it works. Some wanna be in bed very early and wake up early. Some wanna be in bed late and then wake up late. And then there's all sorts of spectrums. We wanna land somewhere in the middle where we're respecting the timeline of that individual child. Nice. Share your website and how we can get your book. So you can find me or more information about myofunctional therapy on my website. It is themyospot.com, T-H-E-M-Y-O-S-P-O-T.com. I also write a blog with a lot of informative information. You can learn more about tongue ties there. That is airwaymatters.com. Um, airway matters with an s.com and uh, the book is available on amazon it is accomplished how to sleep better eliminate burnout and execute goals and you can also um, get her information from mohanilove.com thank you so much for um interviewing with me this morning the information was so much information that i'm sure it helped the audience along with myself. Thank you. Is there anything you would like to say to the audience before we finish? I think the number one thing is always to advocate for yourself. If you feel like something's wrong, don't let it be ignored. I know traditional medicine sometimes will kind of bypass things or medicate them and kind of feel like that's okay, but always advocate for yourself. Be that person who's going to say, you know, something's not right and I hope that there's another way that I can go about getting help. And so self-advocacy is incredibly important but thank you so much for having me i am so happy to have been here and shared all this information 
Thank you. Bye. Enjoy your day. Bye.